So, everyone, consider this. It's estimated that as many as 50% of primary care office visits are prompted because patients are experiencing pain, often even when pain medications have already been prescribed. The pain persists. So what if patients had a tool that helped them better track what's going on? Among the components, an electronic pillbox noting precisely when a pain med was taken, an electronic diary to record when pain occurs, and when it doesn't. And this sounds really far out, a Bluetooth-enabled skin conductance sensor. Sweaty palms, for instance, can be a barometer of how pain is affecting our sympathetic nervous systems. This is just one of several research projects under investigation and that were on display last month at what's called the Health and Wellness 2012. So we're going geeky with smartphones and technology-enabled healthcare improvement on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. It's an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It's free. It's offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. If you're attending WIHI for the first time, a special welcome to you. Uh, as many of you know on this program, we try to headline and highlight cutting-edge improvement innovations, and we're always excited by endeavors that are pushing the envelope of what's possible. And that's a big reason why me, me we, me and the crew, got out of the WHI studio today and took the tea to MIT's Media Lab, renowned for all kinds of technological breakthroughs over the decades. We came to find out about growing interest here and elsewhere in harnessing technology to not just improve individual health, but to dramatically change how patients and providers interact using tools designed to make things more empowering for patients and more productive and effective and convenient for everyone. So it's a pleasure to be gathered around a conference table and conference phone at the MIT Media Lab a block away from the Charles River in Cambridge. We're talking about new media medicine and a healthcare practice of the future that's operating right now. I want to introduce our guest, Dr. John Moore. Some of you on this edition of WIHI may have actually heard John speak at the British Medical Journal IHI International Forum in Amsterdam last April. He's a physician and a technologist, and he's now pursuing a PhD from the MIT Media Lab. He's the principal architect of a software platform called Collaborhythm, which won the award for primary healthcare from the Center for Integration of Medicine and Innovative Technology, CIMIT, in 2009. John made it possible for us to be here today. Welcome to WIHI. Thank you very much, Matt. Someone who works closely with John Moore is Dr. David Judge. He's the head of the CIMIT Ambulatory Practice of the Future Project, a mouthful. Uh, and more than a project, it's an up-and-running clinic at Mass General Hospital, part of Partners. So the future is actually being created now. David believes the office practice of the future uh, very much uh, needs the technologies that the MIT Media Lab are working on, and all of this goes hand in hand. So um, we're here. We're not exactly on a spaceship, and uh, but we're here in a conference room, and we're going to do the best we can with with a lot of visuals to show you some of the stuff uh, that these folks are working on. And we hope you'll uh, take good notes and ask lots of questions. And a reminder, when you log off the pro 
program today, you can download any of the slides that you saw or you can get them from info at IHI.org. So I'm going to start off this way. Uh, a question to both of you, uh, John Moore and David Judge. That's kind of a just a headliner, some quick thoughts. Many people listening uh, to WIHI today, there's a couple hundred of you on already, and welcome, keep coming, are working day in and day out on improving health care and the systems as they more or less currently exist. I was saying to our guests uh, just a few minutes before we started, I'm just now emailing with any regularity with uh, my primary care provider and I know how hard they are working in the midst of uh, implementing um, and adopting um, electronic health records. So I can imagine some people saying, well, this is cool. This is nice. Nice to hear about the futuristic technologies or practice designs that are going to create all these cool partnerships and I'm going to walk around with a smartphone with my doctor's face on it and that kind of thing. But there are so many barriers in the way and I'm up to my eyeballs in improvement right now. So give me your best shot, John, at why people should even be thinking about this right now. Well, I think the, the way you've articulated that speaks to part of the problem is we say, I'm up to my eyeballs in improvement, but patients out there want to be part of improvement as well. And really the, the big point that I like to make is that let them be involved. There are millions and millions of patients, but many fewer healthcare workers. If we can get them involved in, in improvement, then we offload a lot of that burden off of the healthcare system itself. Okay. All right. And that's what a lot of the things we're going to talk about are doing. Definitely. It's a way to kind of shift uh, engagement and responsibility. Right. Right. Okay. All right. We'll hear more in just a minute. David, what's your thought? Yeah, I, I think picking up where John left off, uh, a lot of us are out there struggling just to keep up, uh, are hearing about something called an accountable care organization and knowing that the way that uh, care is paid for is about to change and that as a huge barrier uh, to being able to do innovative things in healthcare is actually going to change and so that if we can really uh, begin to use these tools and technologies because the name of the game now is engaging patients, not just the care providers to be accountable to a population, but as John said, engaging patients to participate in, in making the, the system work better, but also in getting healthier, uh, then that big payment barrier goes away and suddenly a lot is possible. So that'll be part of what I touch on today as we, as we talk. Okay, thank you. That's David Judge and John Morris here as well. Uh, we are around a, a powerful conference phone and we've got little spider things here. We're doing the best we can. <laughs> of shouting at all of you. We'll keep working on seeing if we can boost the level of it in any way. And please, uh, if there's anything you can do, we're all going to hover over just a little bit further. Thanks for your patience, everyone. And welcome to WIHI. We're here at MIT at New Media Medicine in the MIT Media Lab. So I'm going to now ask John to give us that nice kind of thumbnail sketch of the Media Lab, New media medicine, and what are some of the really cool things that are being worked on right now? John. Sure, great. So welcome to the MIT Media Lab. The MIT Media Lab is an interdisciplinary research institution that's been around since the 1980s, and our focus is on human-computer interaction. So what we try to do is make your life with a computer better. And that, over the decades, has spanned things from the convergence of digital media, to wearable computing, which you now all live with, with your iPhones and other technologies, to hum human augmentation, and even changing the way we compose music or play games or the way we learn. 
And what it comes down to uh, in the biggest sense is what we try to do is to empower ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Because really that's what computers are about. They're about augmenting human abilities. And here at the Media Lab, we try to smooth that experience. Our group, New Media Medicine, is no different. Again, we're, our goal is about enabling people to become extraordinarily involved in their healthcare to the extent that they become experts. It's above and beyond what we might think possible because that's what the Media Lab is about. It's about pushing the limits. And we're particularly building a platform called Collaborithm, which is a research platform to explore new, new modes of doctor-patient engagement, modes where patients are really involved in decision-making. They can communicate on a longitudinal basis with their clinicians. They can track things about their health, be involved in, in making improvements along the way, and stepping in before things lead to emergencies because they're really actively involved in that. A, uh, uh, to highlight a specific example, we've done some work with the Boston Medical Center on managing the care of HIV patients. Typically, the situation with a newly diagnosed HIV patient might be that they show up in a room and talk with someone that they've never seen before who tells them they have something invisible in their blood that's going to kill them. And then they go home and they don't take this, this uh, whole group of medications that they've been told, you take this, you'll live. You don't take this, you'll die. It's a very scary experience. What we try to do is, is to provide a very different experience to patients. We say, you have this disease, but let us help you try to understand what's going on. Let us give you these tools that help you track taking your medications or not, let you see inside of your body what's going on. We try to simulate the disease for them. Instead of getting emails or text messages or pieces of mail or phone calls that say you have a T-cell count of 4,824 or a viral load of 12,816, which just goes in one ear and out the other, we try to make it very personal. Mm -hmm. And it's their numbers and they see this simulation of what's going on in their blood and when they take their medication, they see themselves getting protected. A barrier forms around the T cells, which are part of the immune system that HIV attacks. When they don't take their medication, that barrier starts to break down and they start getting attacked and this becomes an artifact for conversation. Right. Now the patient is really involved in this discussion and the physician can say, well, I see you're getting attacked. What can we do to prevent that? Or the patient might say, look at all this virus on the screen. I want to prevent giving this to other people. And in fact, these are the kind of statements we had coming back to us in our study, which is really what we want. We want people pulling information from us. Mm -hmm. And that kind of dynamic just doesn't happen until you give people a voice. And that's, that's what we're trying to do with our work. Similar types of things with hypertension and diabetes, chronic diseases in general, hypertension here where we let the person see each of their medications and see how it works inside their body and see when they're not taking their medication what happens. And when they do take their medication, they can play it back like a video and it's animated and they see the medication flow into their blood and, and block channels or attack viruses or whatever these the different mechanisms of action medications have. We really want to unveil that to people in a very personalized way as opposed to going on the web 
and finding information that's very difficult to act upon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, this is a good snapshot, and we are showing some slides. It's just a flavor of what's going on here uh, in terms of uh, using the Collaborithm platform. Um, if we're, we're putting the slides up on the screen, so I'd invite everybody who's tuned in to sit back and not feel that you have to operate <laughs> the slides yourselves. You can download all these slides uh, at the end of the program, or you can request them from info at IHI.org. Um, let me just ask you uh, a quick follow-up question. Um, one I think I noticed right away when I started exploring uh, the New Media Medicine website is you did do this neat health and wellness innovation thing, and you just had your second one? Third. Third one, Third. just in January. And uh, we do have a, uh, a link to a nice video about the event that took place, and I guess there may be more video to yeah. come. But just give us a flavor. What goes on there, in addition to all the programs that and projects that you can see on the website, people are continuing to come up with even new ideas to work on. So give us a sense sure. of what went on. So this, this platform that we're building called Collaborithm is really a research platform. And so my colleague Scott Gilroy and I decided a while ago that we really ought to put on an event where people can learn how to use it and in a very sh quick period of time get up to speed and build a project to learn how to go forward with, with research using Collaborative. And the focus is always on building projects that enable patients to become active participants in their care, to really empower them with new tools. And what Collaborative provides is the place to store health data securely, to retrieve it, to do video communications and audio communications on top of that to visualize this data. And we help people get running quickly and build projects. So this year, some of the exciting projects that were built were a pain management project where the patient had an automated pillbox that helped them track their medications and the skin sensor that you talked about. So really they could come into the office or come into discussions with clinicians armed with this arsenal of information. All right. And other projects were for asthma, where a child had a spirometer device that they could breathe into, and it would measure their lung function. They could also use it as a spacer for their medications and would automatically track each time they used their medication. Then it could take all this information and turn it into a game on a tablet computer so that it encouraged them to use their medications reliably and to uh, work towards improving their peak flows and to be able to see when problems were coming along so that they could get help as needed from clini clinical coaches who are watching this data flow in as well. <laughs> One of the things I love, uh, thanks, you're listening to John Moore uh, over here at New Media Medicine at the MIT Media Lab and you're tuned to WHI. One of the things I love uh, hearing about is that we often talk about uh, triggers that can help providers understand, you know, or ask certain questions and prompts. And what I love is that we're talking about prompts for patients um, in a way which really, you know, creates a much more dynamic relationship in terms of their own kinds of reminders. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks. All right, we'll get back. We can ask a lot more questions. I want to turn now to David Judge. 
um, of the ambulatory practice of the future. And uh, the reason it makes so much sense that David's here is that there's all this sort of <laughs> technology and synergistic uh, connection here between your work and what's going on here. So uh, talk to us. Um, you know, I, as I, my question to you was going to be, you know, as I started off saying, so many folks I know are just still slaving away on the electronic health record and right. trying to get that right. And right. you're kind of you've jumped ahead here. So uh, what's trying. going? You're trying. What's We're going trying. on? Yeah. So a group of us at Mass General Hospital a few years ago got together and really asked the question: How could we leap ahead, and where would we go? And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the big barriers to being innovative in a primary care setting is the way we get paid to care for our patients, which is just in individual office visits. Um, and the big challenge ahead of us now, though, and the payers are telling us this, is we have to look at our populations of patients and find ways to help them get healthier. So really, fundamentally, what we wanted to do is flip the model from a healthcare uh, model that was traditionally designed to just wait for each patient to come to the office and then have very little interaction between those visits to one in which we could engage patients effectively in a new kind of partnership where they would set health goals, we'd help them get there uh, together with them, and we'd be very proactive about it, and we'd stay in close touch between face-to-face -face visits, and we would rely on other types of uh, technologies to do that, and a lot of that's about communication technology and, uh, and how patients would interact with it, not just how we interact with it. So what we did in order to pull this off is we built a new practice uh, for mainly for our mass general uh, self-insured employees and their adult dependents. So we are, like a lot of large companies, the payer in this case, and that meant we could bend the rules a little bit about what types of services we might want to provide or create. It also meant we could think a lot about what kind of care team needs to be there to support a patient in this endeavor of getting engaged in their own health, perhaps in ways they never have. And so that team involves some of the usual suspects, a doctor, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, but it also includes a medical assistant who's uh, trained to do a lot of uh, the tasks that ordinarily would fall to me in, in, in typical practice that don't need to. Uh, part of what we're trying to do is free up the doctor to use their brain the way it ought to be used, especially when there's something urgent happening or complex. And, it, and our, our team includes a health coach. And when you come to this practice as a new patient, uh, one of the first things you do in your initial meeting uh, where there's additional time set aside for this type of activity is engage in a conversation about setting goals and you find out about what it means to get involved in health coaching where we help you to pursue that health goal, which may be about managing your diabetes or your depression uh, or other chronic illnesses. It may be about other things. The point about this too I think I'd make is it's very patient-centered in that the patients are guiding us. So philosophically, we are where John, I think, wants the healthcare system to be, ultimately, is the patient guides us. They're the expert in their own life and in their own goals and how they would define that. And we sort of follow along and try to support them, giving them information and access to what we typically hide from them. So uh, they see test results and uh, records that we've written about them, some of them for the first time. Uh, they have easy access to us by email. We schedule what we call virtual visits. So part of the schedule of the day, uh, which occurs for the care provider, is still in an exam room where I go and I shut the door uh, and I get online with the patient, often in a phone call, sometimes via Skype. Um, 
where the patient and I are both looking at the same information uh, through their, they through their patient portal, I through my more traditional view perhaps of a record, um, and we can engage in discussion that keeps us moving towards that goal. And we're not held uh, to the barrier of, of doing this only in office visits, which is very limiting. Uh, we also are exploring how a team works effectively together, and so I think that has implications too for the information technology that we use. Uh, and you know, it, it has made very much sense to John and I for a long time that we will find ways to collaborate using tools like Collaborhythm, because what we want to do again ultimately is give the patients uh, the technology and the power and the knowledge that they need to be guiding their own care and that will be there to support them but it's really their job to do. So we've opened about 18 months ago. Uh, we're learning a ton, uh, and a lot of what we did too is reconfigure a space, as you can see here, uh, to support teams that communicate uh, much more during the day to support each other and the patients, uh, to support patients in the exam room seeing the information we see. So all information that we look at in a traditional electronic record or in other uh, formats like images or lab values is right up on the wall where they're looking at it with us. Um, the other thing we hope to be doing much more of is as they are using tools uh, like John might design for them, they'll be displaying that for us in the exam room right on the big screen there so that they're bringing back to us the information they've been collecting um, uh, so to help us make dis uh, you know, decisions, whether it be in a virtual visit or in a face-to-face -face visit at the practice. So. Um, We've, we've sort of set this up as a playground, yeah. and we've only just scratched the surface, I think, but because, again, we've leaped away from the, the usual payment barriers, um, you know, suddenly all this innovation is possible. And as I said at the outset, I think that's where we're going. It seems clearer now that in an accountable care organization, there'll be more uh, freedom to decide how should we deliver care to keep a population healthier, and I think that's why this conversation's very pertinent, I hope, to everybody listening out there. Okay. I have a couple of uh, thanks, um, David Judge, and we are showing you kind of some of the slides. I almost feel like we should be, you know, go on a virtual tour and yeah. maybe we can all troop over <laughs> to yeah. the practice and uh, carry our smart uh, collaborative-enabled uh, technology. Um, I, I have, I guess, just two quick questions and maybe another one for uh, both of you before we head over to chat. What have patients said to you is the thing that they notice that's the most different? Um, I'm just curious. I hope that's not a, a no, surprise no. question. What What do you hear uh, often of the, th the thing that people most notice uh, that stand you know stands out? Uh, well, a couple of things. One is I didn't focus on this, but yeah. we built the space to be less anxiety provoking and to really begin to engage them from the moment they cross the threshold. Many patients walk through the front door and say to our greeter, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place. And she convinces them, no, you're in the right place. Um, so that's one of their first things they say is, wow, this is a inviting and engaging space. There's lots of natural light. And yeah. I think the other thing, though, about the care model that they say is, uh, oh, my God, you're giving me so much time and attention. You know, I think what we've invested in here is, is time. And their first visit to the practice and in subsequent sort of follow-up, what we might call annual physical visits, they have a full hour in which they engage with different members of the team and sometimes more than an hour if they're staying a bit longer to work with the health coach, uh, for instance. And so uh, many of them, as I'm sitting there with them, looking a lot more relaxed than I used to in my prior practice, uh, and many people out there are saying, well, how's he pulling that off, I'm sure, but um, are looking at their watches and saying to me, don't you have some place you need to be? Yeah. So that's an, And then the third thought I'd say about what your very good question is, 
this is a culture change, not just for us, but for them too. They're not right. used to this, as I call it, this sort of big hug we're giving them. We are asking them to be a part of this care team in a way that they've never been asked. Right. I think some of the folks who've come to this practice, were they were aware of that. We sort of marketed this to that population and were ready for that kind of experience. Some weren't necessarily uh, aware of that. And so uh, I think it takes them a little bit of time to understand what do I really mean by that? Uh, what does it mean that they're part of the team, that we're really going to be uh, partnering with them? Uh, I've called patients in sort of what I like to do is quick follow-up calls to our initial visits over the month or two after that initial get-together. And many of them say, oh, my God, you called. You know, so I think the bar is pretty low, and, and you know, unfortunately. But, but I would say this. Uh, again, we're, you know, we're convincing them, and I think this was important, that we mean what we say, that this is a different game. Uh, so I, I guess that's the answer is that yeah. there are many different reactions to that right now. Right. So. Well, that's terrific. Yeah. Any thoughts uh, at all listening to David? Sure. I think that that's what we want to achieve in our work as well, and we want to make it so that so that that happens even when you're not in the same physical space, that giving patients the tools to have a voice at all times, that's the biggest thing that we hear people being excited about as well is at the end of the day, they have this new channel of communication and this new form of relationship. And that's what David's talking about, that they, they feel cared for. And at the end of the day, people like some of the, the techie stuff that we give them and it helps them track things better. But that's not the solution to the problem. At the end of the day, it's the fact that there's someone on the other end of that who's helping them take care of themselves. And that's that's where we think the big wins are, and I think that's where a lot of the overlaps are between what David and I do. How far away are we from you kind of connecting kind of what you're doing, the practice there? And the image that I love, which is sort of holding up your smartphone, and there's you, there you are in real time. You have a question, and you do need a little uh, conversation with a health coach or a provider. <coughs> that kind of real-time sense. I mean, you're still scheduling things. Is that correct at the ambulatory practice of the future? I, it, I'm curious about how much this can sort of work in on an as-needed basis. On a more fluid yes. way. Uh, right. We are, although we're working actually with some folks from MIT Sloan to help us design a more fluid schedule because we're trying still to leap away from that sort of static, yeah. unidimensional schedule of the day to allow not just the scheduled, even virtual visits, but more spontaneous, as we call walk-in, or, or open access care. And yeah. so we do provide fairly good open access care, right. another thing that we uh, think is very important for any population. So in a way, we're ready now. We're ready, as, as John develops these technologies, we're ready to begin to use them, and we'll get smarter about how we schedule our day and how our team can be more flexible, uh, you know, and accept that incoming call we didn't expect, for instance. So, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a certain amount of, of risk that you're taking, right, in, in jumping into this, but the payoff could be huge. So it's a lot to figure out, but practices like David's that are really, uh, you know, pushing over this this front, they have the opportunity to show that potentially by having some more of that flexibility, you prevent emergencies and other problems coming yep. through your door that takes so much more time in the end and therefore put you even further behind. Yep. That being proactive has the potential to dramatically open up your schedule. Definitely. All right, two uh, other quick questions for me, and then we're going to go to chat. People are already uh, jumping in here. Uh, one is, how big is the panel size so far, uh, David Judge? 
the first team has a panel size of about 2,300. We're still meeting some of those folks. And we do expect our panel size per team will be a little larger, perhaps, than what a typical uh, practice, a full-time physician might take care of in a traditional right. uh, practice where they don't have all these team members supporting them. Okay. Yeah. And you are doing research right now. Correct. I I, um, I had asked as we were planning, kind of what are we learning about what difference uh, any of this makes, the design, the way in which patients are interacting, have access, that kind of thing. Right. So the buckets we're evaluating involve patient experience, and in the first 18 months, we already have a good amount of data there that says we're on the right track. We're using the uh, what's nationally one of the benchmark surveys, which is called CAPS, yeah. uh, and we're doing very well there. I'm happy to share that data with your audience mm-hmm. at some point. Uh, we're looking at clinical outcomes, and we look at a lot of uh, look at that through different types of databases we we monitor. Um, we'll be looking at overall utilization of healthcare resources and cost for this model. Um, that this our of course our our idea here our our bet is that an investment in a primary care model like this saves money overall for a population. So I'm sure one of the questions that probably will be tossed at us is, isn't this an expensive model? <laughs> right. uh, and it is. It per, if you think about it in yeah. terms of per doctor, the investment that we make, there's more people on a team. That's the big investment. But we'll be tracking to see if there's a return on that investment, and we expect there will be an overall savings uh, for this population. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. I think that's a fair amount to kind of set the table here. Uh, and uh, Welcome, everybody, to WHI again, right at the half-hour mark. And I'm just going to have John Gothier remind you uh, how to take part in the chat. And I'm going to take a moment then while John is speaking to scroll uh, through and see what are some of the questions you've already posed. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks, Madge. We've had a lot of great questions already. Uh, this is an exciting group. So uh, Madge is going to take a look at the questions and find some to ask. But right now, make sure that you keep all your questions in the uh, chat window to the right um, and uh, and make sure you're addressing it to all participants. So that way I can see it, Madge can see it, and John and David can see it as well here in the Media Lab. Um, Madge? All right. Thanks a lot. All right. I'm, I'm scrolling through. A lot of you saying amazing work, good stuff going on. Um, somebody would love to hear a little bit more about return on investment in, in this initiative in terms of quality, cost, and savings. There's also, um, all right, let's hold on that for a moment. Um, and somebody's also curious about how do sort of the patient inputs of all sorts, so we were kind of looking at some of those tools where patients are monitoring, how does some of that begin to uh, uh, integrate into the electronic health records. So somebody's wondering about kind of the, sure. the loop. How does it work? Um, sure. So in, in all the work that we do here at the Media Lab in New Media Medicine, we use a personally controlled health record to store all that information, and we particularly use one called Indivo X, which is out of Children's Hospital here in Boston. It's an open source, personally controlled health record platform where the individual owns and controls their own data, but can provide access to that to whomever they like. It could be a family member or a friend, or it could be a clinician. And there's nothing saying that they have to make it available to anyone. And so in our studies, we set things up and the the patients decide to share it with a clinician for the purpose of that study. But beyond that, it's completely within their control. And Indivo and other personally controlled health records are setting up aggregators and feeds where they can pull data from clinical sources as well, or where they could push data back up to those uh, clinical repositories. And I think that that role of a personally controlled health record as an aggregator 
is is going to go a long way towards interoperability and towards patient access to care in the next while. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Um, one thing I want to say in terms of some of the questions, I can see people are asking some very thought, thoughtful, deep, and knowledgeable questions. So we got a lot of geeks on here as well, <laughs> people who know what they're talking about. We'll make sure that both uh, David and John get a copy of the chat, and there may be some additional questions that I can twist their arm. I'll have all your email addresses that we might, uh, we don't get to all of it today, just so people are reassured. A number of people are interested a little bit more in the patient population and the characteristics of the patient population you've got, David, just to get a sense of are you dealing mostly with children, uh, what, what's the percentage of elderly, uh, et cetera, and then uh, at corollary, say a little bit more about the provider panel that you've got and whether you're going to be expanding that in any way. Sure. Uh, yeah, the practice ultimately will will have the size of a space for three care teams. Uh, each team will take care of a panel of patients of somewhere between 22 to 2400 people, I think. Um, the population we're caring for is, uh, you know, generally average age, probably about 45 to 50. So this is not typically a Medicare population. Uh, we do have some folks that are on Medicare. Um, the majority of the folks are between the ages of sort of 40 to 50s, some 60s, 70s. Uh, they generally all get have some insurance through the hospital, and uh, we take care of adults and their adult spouses and partners. So we uh, ha do not take care of children. This is not a pediatric practice. It's an internal adult adult internal medicine practice. Um, and we, you know, so the uh, sort of morbidity, the illness that you might see across the population. Uh, is much less about end-of-life care. We are more focused uh, very much on mental health, anxiety, depression in particular, uh, like in any population, is a driver of morbidity here. Uh, and we have a chance to work with a population that are sort of newly diagnosed with blood, high blood pressure or diabetes uh, or other chronic conditions that we have a chance to really help them effectively manage. So. Um, I'm sure one of the questions out there is, well, how do you show a, a difference in a relatively healthy population? It turns out we're not as healthy as you might think, and we, can, we think we can show a difference pretty early on, even in some of the high-cost things like admissions to the hospital and to the emergency room. Uh, but some of the payback on this comes further down the road, and maybe 10, 15, 20 years along. Our, uh, our employer was still supportive of this idea because many of our employees, if you, if you work at Mass General more than a few years, it, tends you, it, it turns out you tend to spend a career there. So investing in their long-term health also made sense uh, as a self-insured employer. Um, did I answer your question? Yes. Oh, and then yeah. the, the yeah. provider. Yeah. So again, each team has the equivalent of one full-time doc, nurse, nurse practitioner, medical assistant, and perhaps even two medical assistants is the model we're moving to, and a health coach, so that each care provider, when they're seeing patients, is actually partnered up with a medical assistant who's helping them get a lot of the work done. Um, and then there'll be one, again, one coach per team. We're going to have three such teams. Uh, over the next year to year and a half. It's going to take us a little while to ramp the whole thing up. In the practice also, we have a greeter who spends time also doing some health education with patients. We have a medical secretary, um, and we'll probably have a little bit more administrative support over time. I'd like to make the point, too, that everybody in the practice is involved in 
running staff meetings, uh, in helping us reach our targets around managing populations of patients. So this is a kind of work culture that's very flat. This is not a physician-centric kind of an organization, and we've worked very hard to make it so. Um, so everybody on the team, it doesn't matter what your role is, in particular plays a part in this population management, thinking about our patients when they're not with us. And we focus a lot right now on high blood pressure and diabetes and mental health. So we sit together in sort of working meetings where we run lists of patients and we think about how can we better serve them? Do we need to reach out? What happened to Mr. Jones? He was supposed to call us. This kind of activity is so valuable that we set aside what would ordinarily be just seeing more patients one by one, uh, time to do this kind of activity. We think it has value. Mm -hmm. John, do you think that patient, that provider panel is the right one? Would you like to see more health coaches um, when I'm thinking about who folks are going to kind of start wanting to connect with more sure. virtually? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's going to need to change over time. It would be premature to try to be too heavy on health coaches now when the, the percentage of virtual visits, for example, is, is probably still fairly low. And, and what you want to do is make that transition and adjust appropriately. And if, if you have a flat team structure and the ability and the forethought to know that that needs to change over time, then you can do that. And uh, yes, yeah, certainly in the future, I think that health coaches are going to be a heavy part of the team. And that's because they're going to be heavily involved in the behavior change aspects of chronic disease management. And they'll kind of be the first line interacting with patients on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis as is needed in the, in the time of that person's progression of managing that disease. And they'll escalate things up to the physician as needed. But that that transition process is going to take time. That, mm -hmm. that any medical practice that's trying to, to think towards the future needs to think about being agile. Thank you. Um, so thanks for all the great questions. I'm doing my best. I need track shoes to keep up with all of this. What, and we will. Somebody asked whether we're going to post all these great questions. And yes, we're starting to kind of uh, make the, at least clean up uh, the, the chat in the sense of getting out sort of extraneous stuff. And yes, we'll post these and then you can begin to continue to see. And a reminder, we keep trying to get folks to join us right after this program concludes today at the top of the hour. Join us over on IHI's Facebook page, and we will continue uh, this conversation. We can get some of the, um, you're, you're all welcome to take part in that. Several people are asking about a health coach, and maybe some people on the program absolutely know this is what a health coach is, or this is the training. Who wants to say, what, what's the background of a health coach? Well, the, so health coaching is not a new uh, field. It's been around a long time, but it hasn't been integrated typically into a live clinical practice, traditional practice setting. Um, <laughs> So uh, coaches can be of various backgrounds. Our first uh, health coach, Ryan Sherman, is a, his background is exercise physiology. Uh, he worked in a cardiac rehab program, uh, knows a lot about nutrition. So that was sort of his take. I think he also did some personal training. So that was his expertise, but he went and got trained, uh, I believe, in the Well Coaches program, which is one of a few that are sort of now forming sort of a certification uh, program for coaching, in which you really learn about how to engage patients in discussions about setting goals, how to motivate them, how to assess if they're 
uh, able and ready to make change in their life? Are they confident? Um, and then to guide them through that process of change. So it's really about coaching people to change behavior, and that's the tough part, and the part that we've never really set aside time or expertise for in traditional practice. We might say to a patient, you really need to go lose 20 pounds, good luck, I'll see you in six months or a year, and not really give them the tools and the knowledge and the support uh, around how to change. Uh, behavior and then sustain that over time. So um, that's you know generally what we're trying to do with our coaching program. I, I can tell you we are also monitoring and we'll be evaluating the impact of that on the patients that get involved in true active coaching. We're already seeing folks lose weight and you know for instance and accomplish other goals that they're setting. And we'll have more to say about that formally as we evaluate that program. I think as we go forward, we'll hire coaches of different expertise. Um, so perhaps with a social work background or uh, other backgrounds that we may see fit the needs of our population. So I think to John's point, we'll morph a bit too as, as a team as we grow and have other expertise that lives on the team. Thanks a lot. And I do see that some people uh, have uh, typed in here in the chat, some people who are health coaches and kind of giving us a sense of their background uh, and what they know about programs. Good question here for you, uh, John Moore. Somebody is wondering what you've learned uh, in terms of sort of like, I don't know, in terms of populations, whether it's the phone or it's the computer or what is the sort of device almost or the means of communication that seems to have either uh, the most resonance for folks um, and or maybe the most um, applicability in terms of what people are most apt to use? Sure. Well, we... we tend to think that in the opposite way that since we're trying to head off the future of where people want to be we try to be a little bit agnostic of mm. what specific device we choose and in fact choosing one specific device pigeonholes you a lot if you just choose the phone that's great when people are on the go but it's not very good when they're lounging around their house um, so what we try to do is to design an experience that works consistently across the computer cell phone tablet and television. So television is, is a place that we'll be hitting as well and we've done some work with. And what we tried to do, even in some of the earliest studies, was to give people ex experience on multiple devices. And uh, with the HIV work, for example, we gave them a device called a Chumbi that sat on their kitchen counter mm -hmm. and we gave them a cell phone that they took with them. And the, the affordances of that device that sits on the counter are that when you're just walking by, you get a peek at it. And it, it serves as this constant reminder. Even if you're not seeing the content on there, the physical embodiment in another place in your life is really valuable. And some of our perceptions about how long it takes to learn how to use these devices, or I think why people want us a lot of time to focus on particular ones, they say, well, it took my grandmother forever to learn to use a cell phone, and therefore we want to keep it tight and simple. Right. Right. And I think that a lot of those biases are based on old technologies and poor human-computer interaction, that in fact some of the studies that we've done with 70 and 80-year-old patients with hypertension on tablets showed that they were capable of doing their medication monitoring 98% of the time for a month. Mm -hmm. and patients with HIV in our study who had never used a computer before and had a high school education or less were capable of using these interfaces that we built in about 15 minutes. So it's all about the, the design in the end and the user experience and it's really more about 
How compelling is that experience? What does it make easier in their lives? Right? If you build a, a technology that creates a lot of work for the patient to do, but at the end of the day, all that data just shows up to a clinician, right. and they don't get to use it or interact with it or get social support, they'll want nothing to do with it. But at the end of the day, they feel that they have control over a disease that was previously very scary to them. They'll learn how to use that in a heartbeat. And especially if family members and friends and clinicians can support them longitudinally through that process. Our 70 and 80 year old patients with hypertension, at the end of the day said, you know, this is great, I can manage my hypertension, but I just love the comfort that comes with knowing that I have the support when I need it. And they didn't abuse it. That's the other thing that people ask us all the time. If you have this open <coughs> communication channel, people are gonna call you at midnight, they're gonna call you 10 times a day. They, they don't abuse it. Uh, there may be a few, but overall, it, it has not been an issue for us. Right. Thanks a lot. I uh, want to thank again all the interesting things people are chatting in. Uh, Kaiser Permanente is reminding that they use uh, health coaches a lot, and somebody typed in the longest URL I've ever seen in my life, but if you can... <laughs> If you can click on that, but I'm sure if you went to uh, the Kaiser Permanente website you might, and did a search, you might be able to find us. But thanks very much. Uh, a tiny URL, that is not. But uh, I really appreciate that. And um, it's great to hear. I, I'd like to ask both of you, maybe I'll, I'll start with you, uh, David. There have been several questions about people wanting to better understand to what extent the ambulatory practice of the future, and you're clearly, uh, John, still in kind of a very investigational mode, but what impact do you already know this is having on people's use of emergency and being able to uh, better access and utilize what uh, a clinic or a primary care practice can offer? Yeah, I think it is early for us, so we're watching yeah. the early data, but the trends are good, and so we're having an impact, and a lot of that isn't necessarily about... Um, technology yet. It's about how you use your people, uh, you know, yeah. and how you uh, schedule the day and the week so that there's time. And so, you know, we uh, leave a lot of relatively open spaces through the day and the week to allow patients to call us and come for urgent issues. We also have to, I think, in primary care, be able to expand the range of care we can provide. A lot of the things for which patients hit the emergency room could be handled in our setting, and we do that. We give IV fluids and antibiotics, and we suture simple wounds, and we uh, give nebulizers for asthma. And a lot of practices out there do these kinds of things, but we need to do it uh, more routinely and safely. And uh, this is an area where technology actually we believe is going to help us to do more and more. Uh, and my friends over at CIMIT, the Center for the Integration of Medicine and Innovative Technology that John and I have both been involved with, have helped me to understand that technologies that traditionally we think of have to happen you know, in a high acuity setting, uh, yeah, procedures right. you know, will come out to the ambulatory setting and into primary care. So we're looking now at handheld ultrasound as an example uh, that could be put into my hands like a stethoscope and I could be making diagnoses or sending those images directly to the radiologist instead of sending that patient to the emergency room when it turns out right. that was not a clot in their calf or that's not the gallbladder causing mm -hmm. the pain. So we're, we're 
just at the edge of beginning to explore some technologies that uh, are ready but haven't had a place to live yet. Uh, but I think most of it's about access right now and having the expertise to handle a wide range of those urgent issues. Uh, some of it will be, some of the access problem is, is uh, what hours can you work? So in an ambulatory setting, we're still traditional business hours. Right. As we grow our practice, we hope to do more early morning and late <coughs> evening types of things. Um, but I think any healthcare organization is going to be thinking about that challenge. And as an ACO or accountable care organization, how can you provide that kind of care uh, across a network of places that may share that responsibility? Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that that help, that's helpful. Yeah. Somebody's asked actually about congestive heart failure, and I was curious whether, uh, as you, I'm not sure you're picking things off disease by disease, sure. but is that one area that you might be looking into as well, John? Yeah, I think so. CHF is probably one of the been one of the most successful areas for telemedicine across the board, across the world. Uh, we, we did a project with one of the teams recently on cardiac rehabilitation, not specifically on uh, the more end-stage heart failure cases, but we're very focused on the, the cases where, we, where there's more of a chance for rehabilitation and, and improvement in quality of life. Uh, but in the CHF case, we're, we're interested in that as well with the same kind of take that we take in all of our others that traditionally most telemedicine solutions for, for CHF are very paternalistic. They suck the numbers off of patients. You get the weight, you get the, you get the blood pressure, you get the pulse, and this information comes to a clinician who then makes a decision, pushes it back to the patient. What we're very interested in is giving that uh, information directly to the patient, helping them make sense of it, understand it. Uh, a lot of our work, a lot of my thesis work now is about apprenticeship as a model for how we engage patients. Mm. The goal is like that it. they work with health coaches <laughs> yep. to become experts, even at a level beyond their clinicians, because it's so focused for them. Mm-hmm. They know themselves, their daily habits, their eating and they're apprentices in this process and they see the numbers and they feel how they feel and they learn to react. And initially in the process, it, there's much more support from clinicians remotely. And then gradually that support fades and the, the patient is that takes the role of modeling that expert behavior. And then eventually they move away from the technology more and they internalize it more. And so that was, that's where our interest lies in, in diseases uh, and conditions like congestive heart failure is, is really to promote self-efficacy to the extent that even goes up to an expert level. Mm-hmm. And can I comment oh, yeah, on go that? ahead. I, I love say, that concept of apprenticeship. I love it too, and I think yeah. that's a, that's the right model. The classic yeah. place we've seen it so much already is in diabetes, and one of the uh, practices that I learned a lot about in designing our own is a practice uh, that uses the Promatura model, where in this case it was in a, a Latino community with a lot of diabetes, and the patients become the providers. They reach that point beyond apprenticeship of expertise where they actually treat other patients. So we like that model, that sort of peer-to-peer, patient-to-patient model, and want to begin to do that in our own practice and find ways for our technology, our social media technology, to, to allow it to happen too. So we'll be exploring Yeah, that. and ap- apprenticeship traditionally is really not just the master and apprentice, but the, the cohort of peers who are learning that craft together. Right. And I think that'll be a really big part of helping people become more independent in their health care and in really making a huge impact on the economics of healthcare. care. When you distribute expertise out to the masses of people, 
you dramatically change right. the infrastructure right. and you dramatically change the, the uh, economics. So it comes back to your question of, you know, well, there's so many other things that we need to do. Well, it always comes back to me that this is where the big difference is really going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it's tricky because yep. we've been training people for the past several decades or centuries to be reliant on us. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> a switch is changing, and we're saying, hey, yeah. you're a part of this. Well, yeah. it's going to take more than that. It's going to take real um, dedicated and very regimented ways of, of teaching people and engaging them and helping to push them towards their their natural capacity because we, we've spent some time training them at the, the opposite. Right. No, I think that's absolutely right. And there were a number of questions here. Somebody asked, are doctors really, you know, r ready for this? And I know we had talked about, you, you discussed that uh, we underestimate in many ways or tend to stereotype, you know, who's going to be able to kind of grab onto some of the technology. <coughs> sure. Um, I guess I want to ask you very quickly, David, two things. You said you were less stressed. Are the providers in, at the ambulatory practice of the future happier in their jobs in any way? And would you say you're finding out also that patients have much greater capacities to handle some of this than maybe assumed? Yes and yes. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're doing well. I mean, I, I think we'll be measuring this as well. Actually, I didn't say that, but the work life is so much uh, more rewarding uh, and feels very reasonable the way we've designed the day. And really, uh, well, people will ask me, but you know, you can't see as many patients uh, in a day if you're seeing a couple an hour or something like that. But it turns out with the virtual care we're providing, you're actually touching more lives, or as many as you used to, and in a more effective and efficient way, and a more relaxed and sort of measured way. So for me as a, as a clinician, I also see that I'm using my time more effectively and more as I was trained to do than ever before as we sort of train our team to support us. Um, and yeah, I think patients... Uh, uh, yeah, you know, are, are as well. You know, uh, enjoying this experience for the most part and uh, getting engaged. So, terrific. Thank you. Um, so, a couple uh, last questions and comments. <laughs> I'm sorry if I uh, scrolled way ahead of that. I guess several people are asking, can they get hold of that spacer spirometer? <laughs> <laughs> so we <laughs> looks cool on the, so on the, the screen. <laughs> the team that, that built that, they built that in ten days. <laughs> at the end of January. So what we wanted to show is that, that a lot of these constraints that we put on the medicine say, oh, there's too many barriers, there's too much uh, regulation to go through. The, yeah. We In 10 days, they build a, a 3D prototype with working electronics and a working app that goes with it. But it's a 10-day prototype. So uh, yeah. they're, they're working on the next stages to see uh, how they can right. how they can take this to the research stages yeah. I think is really the best place to go and then after doing some research to validate the effectiveness then taking that towards a, a spin-off company yeah okay uh, but it, yeah. right now they, they so wait a little while but you <laughs> well know. that's a that's a signature thing that happens here at MIT you know is yeah and things, things happen quite quickly right, I mean, right. getting a prototype a working pretty, prototype yeah. together that quickly so that maybe in the next couple of months they could start doing research that's already way ahead of the schedule that these types of innovations typically get out there okay. and a lot of that they're leveraging the backbone of work that we've been doing for the past four years so that 
in terms of the patient privacy and data storage and all that, that's already in place. That's great. Terrific. All right, I'm going to make just a, a, a quick comment here. We've been talking about new collaborations to benefit patient care, and there's some interesting other collaborations uh, going on all around us, and one, uh, some are taking place at Intermountain Healthcare and Vanderbilt, where they've pioneered new ways of monitoring sedation to allow for increased mobilization of patients, getting ventilated patients up and moving, and that helps to reduce delirium. Now, you can learn all about it at a seminar that's taking place in May in San Diego, and all that information is on IHI.org. Um, let me see if we can get in just a couple of, we're, we're coming to the top of the hour here, um, somebody, fascinating question, somebody wants how long, how long before we put most concierge doctors out of business, uh, that's an interesting comment, maybe we'll just leave that one, <laughs> sit in there, um, uh, we'll, we'll see what, what the trends are, and um, so uh, maybe I'll just, instead of, um, we will post the chat to the website, um, I'm, give me a second here, folks. I'm just kind of scrolling through, through here and see if there's anything more. Um, well, maybe we should just wrap up and let our guests kind of give some sort of parting shots. What to look for next? Uh, John, maybe I'll start with you. You kind of hinted at that, but uh, kind of what are you most excited about in this uh, in the months coming up here now? Yeah, so I'm, I'm about to propose my Ph.D. thesis, and it's, and it's very much about this concept of of apprenticeship and how to really formally evaluate it as a model for engaging patients towards more increased self-efficacy. David is one of my PhD advisors, so there's a little bit of a connection there. So far, he's doing very well. And uh, I'll be doing work with the Jocelyn Diabetes Clinic, and I'll likely be doing work with David as well. And uh, I think there'll be some exciting results to see there in terms of just how capable people are of managing aspects of their care that we typically uh, resign to have done by clinicians. In fact, there's a lot of research out there already that says that sometimes people managing their own insulin or their own uh, hypertension medications and titrating their own meds are able to do that as effectively or more effectively than they are in collaboration with a clinician. But my work, will what it will strive to show is that in really tight collaboration together, where we're really a, a team, that we can get outcomes that really uh, blow the roof off of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, Vicki uh, Minden, who's here, is reminding us that we had a wonderful speaker at our forum in December who uh, brought basically self-dialysis uh, to a clinic in Sweden uh, just sure. through efforts of wanting to gain more control really over scheduling, to reduce infections, and to have some you know control in his life. And ended up, he and the nurses there teaching patients of all ages um, about using that. And that's something that we see as one of those kind of disruptive innovations. Um, yeah, very I much that presentation yeah. is inspiring. Yes, very much, Christian Farman. Parting words from you, David. What are you excited about? Um, we're getting to spring soon, and kind of, uh, I know you hinted at some of the ways this is all going to grow. Several people asked whether this is a model that can be, uh, you know, replicated and spread. And of course, we do have some of these thorny payment issues. But yeah. Um, yeah. what would you say? No, I think I'm very excited now more than ever about the possibility that the payment issues could. Uh, change enough or even dissolve uh, so that we can be much more free to provide this kind of care, uh, to create these kinds of care models, to use the kinds of technologies that John is creating. 
uh, I don't think it's so far away that, okay. that it'll, these uh, ideas will be transferable to any population. I think uh, there's still a lot of details to be worked out about what an ACO is and what global payments mm -hmm. look like, especially in primary care. Um, but if it truly gets us away from being paid only for office visits, uh, it really will blow open. It will blow the roof off the house, as John's talking about. And what we've yeah. seen already in our sh brief time is we can be much more innovative. Uh, we are now hunting for these tools where we never could have fit them or conceived of how to use them before. So if I, I think if my prediction is we'll look back hopefully five years from now, definitely ten years from now, and we will have changed so much. And a lot of that would be culture change. Yeah. The things that we didn't believe were possible. And, the, and I think uh, to speak to what John and I believe very strongly, what we didn't think patients could do for themselves, they will be doing. Mm -hmm. And we will have built the systems and the tools that enable them to do it. And we'll be healthier as a population. And I think we will have met the challenge uh, of all the payers and of our federal government as a payer of lowering the cost of care. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Drs. John Moore and David Judge. And it's been very exciting to be over here at the MIT Media Lab in this new media um, medicine area here. Next up on WIHI on March 8th, we're going to be looking at highly reliable hospitals that work ahead with IHI's own Maureen Bisignano, our president and CEO, and also Mark Chasen, uh, Chasen, I should say, who's the president of the Joint Commission. So you might want to check that out. That info is on our website right now. Some reminders, which I see John has also chatted in. If you, uh, when you log off the program, you'll be prompted and you can download the slides. We'd love it if you could fill out a brief survey. By tomorrow morning, you'll see the archive of this uh, audio program, plus some related resources. We will uh, just do a little cleanup uh, on the chat and post those as well. And if you have any questions whatsoever, feel free to email info at IHI.org. Now, the people who help make WIHI possible, whether we're in the studios or here at MIT, are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse and our Northeastern Co-op, Rachel Yates. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. Today was a wonderful example of that. My thanks again to John and to David. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thanks for joining. Mm -hmm.